0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, today, we are going to be chatting with Jack Silverstein and talking about fundraising myths and why we should be busting them before we do i want to share a couple of things with you first of all i am super stoked because my husband and i we finally moved into our new home if you've been listening for a few years you know We kind of have gone from place to place for the last year or two, and so I was finally able to set up a recording studio that feels like a recording studio. So whether or not you notice the difference in this audio, I love where I am sitting right now, and I am just super excited to be able to start bringing conversations to you from my new little recording box in the middle of my home. I also just want to share with you that we have an upcoming Ask Dolph Live on Friday, August 26th. So we get questions almost every week from podcast listeners and blog readers and clients and former clients. And you know, I'm always happy to hit reply and share my thoughts with you or to pick up the phone and share my thoughts with you. But one of our listeners who reached out to me with a question when I responded said, you know, you should really do one of these live where you just encourage people to send in their questions and then they can ask you that question in a live format. So we're going to give it a shot. It's Friday, August 26th. We are asking that you register and that you share your question in advance so that we can be ready. But if you're interested, please go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and register for the Ask Dolph live. And now I am really, really happy and excited to be able to introduce you to Jack Silverstein. Jack started fundraising in high school as a volunteer, and that was the start of a long and very successful career. Jack has worked as a professional fundraising consultant as well as a fundraising executive with multiple nonprofit organizations. I'll share with you, Jack has over 25 years of professional experience in fundraising. And also, by the way, has a unique take on it because Jack has done fundraising in two countries. So he is Canadian and has done fundraising there and has also had jobs where he's crossed the border and done some fundraising consulting in the United States as well. He recently authored and published the book, Tales from the Trenches, What I Learned from 25 Years in Fundraising. So we are gonna have a conversation today with Jack about some of the myths of fundraising and why we should be busting them. Hey Jack, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Dolph.
0: So I will share with you. I'm hoping we're just gonna jump right in and start talking about some of these myths. And I will share with you that as I was reading your book, one of the myths that really, really stuck out for me is that the myth most money comes from events. And And I have to share with you, I hear this all the time, like well-intentioned boards that say, oh, we need more money. We currently do two events. Let's do four. And I think, oh, my gosh, are you trying to kill yourselves and your staff?
1: Yeah, uh, boards and bosses always kind of go into that that theory because it's relatively low hurdles and uh, uh, low barriers to entry uh, events. The problem is from a, a technical standpoint is actually you could lose money running an event. Um, if you ask someone for a major gift, you really aren't going to lose money other than the person's salary. Um, so I think that you know any good fundraising shop will have its its plethora of revenue streams, right? So it's direct mail, it's events, uh, you know, gift planning, the major gifts, and then there's events. Um, But to do an event for an event's sake and not be able to kind of dovetail that and to be able to flip those event participants into some sort of a a donor, I think is a huge disservice to the organization. Um, In Canada, there's a lot of places that do these lotteries. Um, Hospitals are notorious for it, where, you know, you win a house or a boat or a million bucks or, you know, all these things. And the tickets are a hundred bucks and they always sell out and people buy them. Um, But I'll be honest, they aren't buying it to support the charity. They're buying it to win the house or the car or the million bucks. And when they lose, they said, you know what, it went to a good cause. So I don't feel as bad as kind of going down to the variety store down the street and buying a a Lotto Max ticket um, and losing and saying, oh my gosh, I have nothing to show for it. But truth be told, I think the charity would be so much better off to get that $100 as a donation from the the person who buys the ticket then a ticket because the reality is is that they still have to pay to run the license they have to buy all their prizes there's all these kind of hidden costs that are in there so I think it's you know as far as bang for the buck and you know which part of that hundred dollars really goes to the charity the bigger piece of the pie is if someone just strokes a check and says here charity here's a hundred dollars Um, so I think, you know, a lot of times boards and bosses, when it comes to events, it's easy to sell a raffle ticket or it's easy to sell a golf foursome or, you know, go and see a dinner or a speaker. It's much harder and it's much more uncomfortable to go ask your good friend to consider a gift of, you know, a six figure gift that gets into kind of that realm of uncomfortableness, where, where events are pretty easy going, especially when it comes peer-to-peer events, right? So you do a walkathon or a bikeathon. that's easy enough to do. You really aren't looking for large gifts, though you aren't going to say no to them. But, you know, when you look at a major gift, that's what you're looking for. And it's, you know, you're putting yourself out there. Um, and I think that's where that uncomfortableness goes. And it's much easier to go where you're comfortable.
0: And it's interesting because so often what I will see, especially with small and medium-sized organizations that are doing events, as an example, maybe they're doing a gala dinner, and they say to their board members, okay, in order for this to be successful, we need each of you to quote-unquote buy or sell a table, and maybe they're tables of eight or maybe they're tables of ten. And so then what they will frequently do is they'll buy or sell the table. But what I often see is they buy the table and then they give tickets to friends or to colleagues. And what happens is they're not necessarily asking themselves who would be interested in actually supporting our mission and becoming a donor. They're thinking, well, I got to fill my table and, you know, I'm going to invite Jane and I'm going to invite Bob. Oh, and maybe my boss wants to come. But that does not really actually support the mission. All that's happened is, frankly, the board members kind of made an ineffective gift to the nonprofit because they're going to have to spend money on the catering.
1: You're 100% correct, Dolph. And I would go a step further, which is most boards are governance boards and hate fundraising and will do anything in the world to avoid fundraising. Um, So, you know, I've been to places where, you know, they buy a table and they just they fill it or they'll even say, listen, if it's. $3,000 3000 bucks a table, I'll give you 4000 if I don't have to go. Um, so I've seen donors do that um, just because, you know, when they were recruited for the most part, they're recruited for governance issues. They aren't recruited to fundraise. And when you, you know, ask who wants to fundraise, raise your hand. There might be one or two on the board. It's certainly not the majority of a board. Even if it's a foundation that supports a parent organization where technically their mandate is fundraising. People would much rather kind of get into the weeds of, uh, you know, governance and uh, budgets and strategic plans and things of that sort, as opposed to the tactical of, you know, how are we going to raise this money? Um, so, yeah, events are, are, are tough, um, but it's something that's, you know, universal that everyone can wrap their head around. A lot of times, uh, board members can't wrap their head. Who in their right mind would give a gift of 50,000 bucks? I certainly couldn't do that. I don't think anyone could. And I think that's one of the bigger problems is kind of getting past their own uncomfortableness. Um, I can certainly afford to to give a thousand bucks for a foursome. That makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I've got to ask because you were saying that most board members really want to engage in governance and not fundraising. So I've got to ask does this mean you're not a fan of a give get for your board members?
1: Um, no, I think it, it needs to be there, but I think you should, you know, manage your expectations. Um, so I think that a lot of them will do it. I um, mean, if you recruit the board under those auspices, it works quite well. You know, it's if you change the rules of engagement halfway through their term, they're going to say, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. But I, I think you still need to do a give and get um, on your board and kind of manage those expectations as to kind of what a minimum gift should be. Um, I even say – go so far as to say when you're recruiting board members, if they're sitting on your board, your charity should be one of their top three charities. And if it's not, you know, that's without giving dollars and cents as to how much they give. If it's not, they're in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And Um, and and then you you need to have a fundraising committee.
0: Right. I'll share with you one of the things I love about this concept of you need to be giving to our organization if you're on the board – and among your top three, is that also means you probably really should not be serving on more than three boards. Like whenever I talk to someone, whether they're on a board or we're considering them for board service, and they're on eight boards, and let me say, they're not um, early retired and viewing this as their full-time job, I think to myself, they are the worst board member on probably every single one of these boards, because there's no way you can fulfill your obligation. 100%.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that they, they, those ones would overextend themselves. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's just kind of managing those expectations and making sure that, that everyone is kind of in agreement uh, when they're recruited. And these are, you know, this is what we're hoping that you're going to be able to do. But it's getting people outside of their comfort zone, which, you know, is, is a talent.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I, I do really love your perspective that if you're thinking about major donors instead of events, you have a lot less invested and at risk by cultivating and eventually soliciting that $50,000 or a quarter million dollar gift than you do by saying, hey, let's have a big event and hope to raise a quarter million dollars.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, in a former life, I don't know, about 20 some odd years ago, they used to run a walkathon. that used to, it was so laborious, um, it used to take a ton of staff resources and it would net 50000 bucks. So I finally said to the executive director, I'll find $75,000 to not do it. And I did. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't occur for a couple of years. And then, you know, they started pushing back and saying, we want this, but they didn't want it as a, f- a fundraiser. They wanted it as a friendraiser, which is a like, great, you can manage your expectations, then move it to the marketing and communications department, let them play with it.
0: Agreed. 100%, which is a great segue into um, how executive directors supervise and manage and work with fundraisers?
1: Yeah, you know what, it's a a tough one. So I think, uh, again, it goes back to, you know, one of my biggest mantras, which is managing expectations. Um, So, you know, kind of a middle of the ground uh, fundraiser, their life expectancy is 18 to 36 months. Um, And I would say with COVID now, it's gotten even shorter um, because people are realizing, hey, listen, you know, if it's not, this isn't really floating my boat, I'm going to go somewhere else no one works for nonprofits to get rich that's just not the way it is so as soon as there's a bump in the road and as soon as their values don't align with the organization they're out of here Um, but so many times organizations have this expectation that you know jane doe is going to be with them for 10 years 20 years get that gold watch that doesn't happen anymore they say today that the average college graduate will go through nine careers in their life not nine jobs nine careers um so you know if you realize that and say hey you know what if i get 24 to 36 months i'm doing pretty good um i convinced a board where i had some tenure where it was five years so you know if you compare the five years to the 24 to 36 months i'm doing really well if you compare the five years to their expectation that someone's going to be there for 10 or 15 years it's not going to happen so and a lot of times there's burnout right and it's making sure that the resources for the staff are there you know they aren't uh, the staff is there To make the place better so how can they make the place better there's personal enrichment sending them on courses having them uh, deal with mentors and things of that sort and fundraising has to be seen as an integral part of the organization where there's that disconnect where you know fundraising is seen as the necessary evil it really fails Um, you know I I was talking to a a group the other day a hospital um, and I said you know if someone came in, If you woke up in the morning and there was a hundred billion dollars sitting on your desk in cash, you'd fold up the foundation in two seconds. I said, but the hospital would still be open. The research institute would still be open. You're a means to an end. Um, So, you know, that you kind of have to balance that means to an end with the fact that, you know, the fundraising has to be part of a a planning process. And, you know, when there's decisions that are made and they say, oh, okay, the fundraiser will go raise the money that we need for this without involving any uh, donors in the conversation, well, you know, it it better be something that's as generic as apple pie. Otherwise, you're going to fail.
0: So I think this really leads to an important strategic question. If the average tenure of, say, a chief development officer is going to be 18 to 36 months, how does that change the way organizations should be doing fundraising, keeping in mind that you're probably in the job for six months, even if you've been a CDO before, before you really know what you're doing and you're good at it? So how does that change the way organizations should be fundraising?
1: Well, you know, I I think that those five-year strategic plans can get thrown right out. Um, You know, my guess is if you go back five years, no one thought of COVID. Um, So, you know, they're only as good as the paper they're printed on and so many times people labor over those five-year plans and they sit nicely on a bookshelf and are never looked at again. Um, What I tend to do is shorten it to three years at the most, but I do a business plan every year that kind of dovetails with the strategic plan. So the business plan is, well, tactically, how are we going to get from point A to point B? That is one of our goals in the strategic plan. So I think, you know, having some sort of roadmap works well. Um, and I also think that, that with the turnover, you almost are going to need to be having a lot more generalists. Um, so if you think that the average fundraising shop has a handful or less of folks, that's the average. You know, the hospitals and the universities and colleges have, you know, dozens of folks. Uh, Harvard has 400 and some odd people. Right. So, you know, you can be a specialist of a specialist of a specialist, but most of us have to become generalists. And I think that's great so that you, you aren't working in a silo. You kind of see what is there. And, you know, what would be really neat is if after someone had 24 to 36 months, if they moved from one position in the foundation with you to a different position and say, you know what? I did annual fund for a while, but what really intrigues me is I hate the phrase planned giving. Um, I think every gift is a planned gift other than, you know, when your next door neighbor hits you up for, for 10 bucks. I would rather call it gift planning. Um, so I think that, that, or deferred giving. So I think that, you know, something like that where they say, hey, I can go here and go there. And I think it's a supervisor's job to encourage them. Far too often, they, uh, the staff are evaluated based on the dollars they bring in. Um, And I think the dollars are a byproduct. I think it has to do with the activity they do. Um, So if they aren't meeting, if they're in their office all day long, I can guarantee you they are not raising their requisite amount of money unless they're a direct mail specialist. Um, If you're spending your days out with donors, I guarantee you, you're gonna be more successful than the donor that isn't. So there's other metrics to look at. You know, how many first meetings are you doing? How many second meetings are you doing? Um, You know, is there a cogent case? There's all these kind of things. uh, But so many times that executive directors have no idea how to supervise the fundraising staff because they aren't fundraisers and they're uncomfortable fundraising themselves. So, you know, I think everyone needs to be involved in fundraising, but not everyone needs to ask for money. So it could be thanking, it could be taking people on tours, it could be doing a, a myriad of different things, but people get all, you know, a bugaboo about asking for money, and that really doesn't need to be the focus of everything in the fundraising department.
0: Right. I'll share with you, I feel so lucky because my first fundraising job was in a small, small fundraising shop. I think there were maybe four people. And my very first job I, in fundraising, I was a grant writer and I did that for a couple of years and I excelled. And eventually they said to me, Hey, um, why don't you hire your replacement? And then we're going to have you work on this campaign over here. And then I got to work on this campaign. And, you know, interestingly enough, like a year or so after that, they said, Hey, you did a good job on that. You know, why, why don't you come over here and work on this event too? Um, and then, and then they gave me some other kind of, Non fundraising projects that I really enjoyed, things like accreditation, for, reaccreditation for the agency, and things like that. But it was interesting because that was one of my longest tenured jobs, and I never put that together. But you're right; they kept moving me to do something else because I felt like I'd achieved what I was going to achieve in that other job, and I'd not put that together. So thank you. It's really interesting to kind of look back on that and think about that. It, I will also share with you over the course of my career and this has come to me only in the last few years like 5 or 6 years i've also realized that it's critically important for every key employee whatever you think of that as like your senior leadership team people with director in their title or whatever to have and maintain essentially a playbook for their position so that you know if they if they win the lottery and move to another country or whatever that there's this there's this playbook and it's not typically not a short document it's typically a 50 60 page document of everything the new person needs to know from this happens every march to hey you know jack is going to call you every friday at 10 because you're the development director and you should take his call because he gives a quarter million dollars every year whatever it is like lays all of that out so that way the person kind of has like this bible that they turn to for their first year
1: I I have always done that with uh, my staff. Uh, We call it the handoff manual, and I used to always say in case they get hit by a beer truck. Um, But dovetailing with that is I am a strong advocate of annotating everything in a database, right? So, uh, you know, as much information, anecdotal information that you can have. So Mrs. Doe has three kids. They're Harry, Sally, and Jane, and blah, 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 blah. You know, they married here. This is where they live. Like, you can never have too much information. And then someone can just go into the file and know exactly where you are. It's almost like following a recipe. You know exactly where you are and cooking the cake. And hopefully the cake will come out nicely. But if you have no idea where you're going, then, uh, you know, you're creating the wheel and wasting a whole lot of time.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting you say that. I, once upon a time, I was doing an interim executive director engagement. And I do a lot of, uh, even as an interim, I do a lot of phone calls to Donors that make they make a gift over a certain threshold. And so literally like, and these days you just get voicemail. So, you know, so I'll make the call, leave the voicemail, and if I get the voicemail, then I handwrite a note. So I, I handwrote a note, and I handed it to this person who was a first-time development director in a, in a one-person development shop. So I handed it to this person who had, who had just very recently started, and I said, hey, can you share with me what are you going to do with this card? And, and the person looked at me and said, mail it? And I said, and what else are you going to do with it? <laughs> and they're like, I don't know. What else should I do? with I'm like, well, I was like, it, what I would do with it as a fundraiser is I would scan it in and I would get it in the database so that if you're gone in three years, and I'm clearly gone because I'm, I'm a temp, I'm an interim, whoever comes in when they're looking at this household will go, okay, yeah, they got this note. Um, but I think you're right. Like every single interaction's got to be in your CRM.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that you have to embrace the technology rather than fight it. And so many of us uh, fight it.
0: Yeah. And I will say it is so easy to scan stuff in now. Like, you can do it on your phone. You can do it on your copier, or on your printer. It is right. so easy to seamlessly scan it in that there's real, like, you know, back in the day, 20, 25 years ago, this was a lot of work. To, to actually figure out how to how to save a handwritten note and get it anywhere, you know there were no there were no like camera phones if there was a scanner, it was a pain to use and it did not you know you know it did not integrate into your network like we live in a miraculous time now, jack, just a miraculous Definitely. time well one of the other things that I often hear boards say and sometimes executive directors, and I know it's one of your your miss, which is the myth of Mr. or Ms. X has a lot of money. And if we can just get in front of that person, they're going to give us $150,000 or $10 million.
1: Yeah. Um, if that were only the case, mind you, my guess is Bill Gates gets harassed on a, on a daily basis and has a foundation kind of as a buffer for that Um, but that's you know that's such an unrealistic thing Uh, so you know you try to figure out well what makes someone a good prospect and you know there's four C's you know so there's commitment there's capacity there's a contact and whether they're charitable by nature so the number one driver of it is not capacity it's commitment Um, are they committed to your cause Uh, you can't capitalize on, you can't create commitment out of thin air, but you can certainly capitalize on commitment. And a lot of times we see the people who've been with you for 25 years, who are those steadfast donors who leave some huge bequests down the road. Those are the ones that are there, and you're much more likely to get a bequest from a donor who's been with you for 20 years than someone who gives you a million dollars one time. Um, So I think that while that's a great concept, uh, my response was always, okay, well, do you know so-and-so? Um, and you know, so many foundations in this day and age don't accept unsolicited requests um, because they realize everyone just kind of goes through it and say, well, where are the, where's the biggest money? Um, there was an organization in uh, Shopify, which is North America wide, their head office is here in Ottawa. Um, so there was a local organization that shamed them and, and put a, a full page ad in a national newspaper and said, hey, you know what, you should be giving to us. You haven't returned our call. And I think they were trying to do it tongue in cheek, but it was one of the most offensive things I've ever seen as a fundraiser in my life. Um, and my guess is, is if I was a donor to that organization, I would have stopped donating immediately. But my guess is it's not like the guy from Shopify said, "Oh, you know what, you're right, let me just send you a check with a whole lot of zeros on it. It doesn't work that way. Um, and it's a whole trust you know so so fundraising it's a relationship so you know you liken it to marriage you usually don't propose on the first date it's a bit of a a dating game that's there and you know the first gift that most donors will give you is a test here's a thousand bucks what are you going to do with it how much are you going to love me for a thousand bucks Um, And so once that rapport is built, uh, and I think that's where boards get frustrated, is that a major gift sometimes takes two to three years to close, whereas an event, you know, boom, 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 your golf tournament is in August, it's done, and and that's your world. Uh, Major gifts is much different. It's on the donor's timeline. They really don't care about your budget or your year-end.
0: And to your point that it's a lot like marriage, also a lot like finding the person you're going to marry you're going to go on a lot of first dates and so you're going to have a lot of coffees with prospective major donors and in that conversation you're going to suss out hey you know, do does this person, as you say, does this person have the commitment? You know, so kind of like on a first date, a common question you might ask is like, hey, you know, do you ever want kids? And, you know, if one person really wants kids and the other doesn't, well, there probably should not be a second date. And, you know, and and, and it's the same kind of thing, you know, hey, what are you really passionate about? And if your organization is nowhere in there, you know, if they're really passionate about animal welfare and you're a soup kitchen and they have no concern at all for, you know, people who are homeless or people who are facing food insecurity, you should move on. Like, to me, it, it is a lot like you're looking for your spouse and you're going to have a lot of first dates and not a lot of second ones.
1: A hundred percent. And I think that's where, you know, as fundraisers, we need to become psychologists. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, you're a fundraiser, you must have a degree in business. And I said, well, I, I have a minor. I said, but I would do so much better if I had a degree in psychology. Who cares about the how someone gives? I would concentrate on why someone would give in the first place. If you can't get past the, the why, the how is kind of insignificant.
0: Jack, it's interesting. I, I'm a, I have a degree in social work. My graduate degree is not in it, but my undergrad is. And I say this all the time, whether as a fundraiser or an executive director or a consultant, I use my social work degree every day of my life. It was such a good investment. And, and it's funny because most people don't think of their social work degree as an investment. It was such a good investment. Well, so I want to make sure that we've got some time for the off-the-map question. And I've got kind of a not unusual question. I have a feeling it's one that you have gotten before. But your company has a very interesting name. So your company's name is Yucks Enterprises. And there has to be a story behind that.
1: There is. It's not as uh, sexy as someone would think. So, uh, nice Jewish boy. My Hebrew name, uh, Jack, is Yaakov. Um, So, when I was younger, my parents called me Yucks. And when I went to preschool and people called me Jack, I used to correct them. No, 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 my name is Yux. So, I've had this holding company for, you know. 20 some odd years as I did consulting and some other things. And so that it just kind of grew as Yucks Enterprises. In Canada, there's a comedy club called Yuck Yucks. Um, I have a personalized license plate that says Yucks and everyone thinks I own Yuck Yucks. And I'm like, no, not so much.
0: Okay. So admittedly, it's, you're right. It's not what I was expecting, but it's a really, really sweet name for your company. It kind of harkens back to your childhood and your parents. That's really sweet. So listeners, I want to make sure that if you want to reach out to Jack, you know how to do that. So a couple things. You can go to yucks.ca. Keep in mind he's in Canada. So yucks.ca. And he's got a fantastic blog there. There's also some links to like some YouTubes he's done and some other audios that he's done. So definitely worth checking out. But the other thing is he talks about I think like 10 myths in his book. And we only talked about three of them today. So if you want to know what the other seven are, especially, say, if you're an executive director who's not a fundraiser, because by the way, most of us that have been fundraisers, we're like, oh yeah, we know this is a myth. But if if you want to better understand what the myths are, make sure you go to Amazon or your favorite book retailer and check out Tales from the Trenches, what I learned from 25 years in fundraising. It is a good read. You will enjoy it and you will get a lot out of it. Hey, Jack, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Dolph. I thought it was a hoot.
0: Well, listeners, if you found this podcast episode to be a hoot, there's two more that I want you to consider downloading and listening to. The first is Episode 72, Make Your Board an Engaged Fundraising Machine with Kim Horton and Greg Giles. You may recall this was an interesting uh, ED development director pairing. So especially if you want to better understand how a good ED, development director relationship works and works in such a way that it raises money. And by the way, also might increase that tenure more than 18 months or more than 36 months. Make sure you listen to episode 72, Make Your Board an Engaged Fundraising Machine. Also, I want you to consider... Downloading episode 170, Challenge the Fundraising Status Quo with Sherry Quam Taylor. There are a lot of myths in fundraising. We talked about three of them today. And there's also a lot of, this is what we've always done in fundraising, and this is just how we do it and why we do it. Well, there's been some seismic shifts in the fundraising world over the last two decades. So if you're still thinking about fundraising or you're working with someone who is the way we were 25 and 30 years ago... Definitely check out episode 170, challenge the fundraising status quo. And finally, listeners, I just want to remind you that we're doing an Astolf Live on August 26th, which is a Friday. If you have made it to this point in the podcast, you're a hardcore listener, and so I think you of all people should be thinking about going to successfulnonprofits.com and checking out the Astolf Live and registering for it. Also, If you are sharing us online or in social media, please make sure you tag us, Successful Nonprofits. We will then be able to reshare your post as well. And that, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, every week, the lawyers make me say this, I'm not an accountant and I'm not an attorney. Neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. I know. Who would ever think, since I'm not an accountant or an attorney, that I would do that, but I don't provide that kind of advice. This show is for informational purposes only, and not surprisingly, then, should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of that, please, please do yourself a solid and find a licensed, qualified, professional in your area and reach out to them. And if for some reason you're not sure what type of professional you should be reaching out to, or you don't know a licensed person in your area, you can always reach out to me. If I do know someone, I am happy to make the referral.